0: Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches, and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick, guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club, where your hosts, Adrian Frost
1: and Laura Geyser, this month, we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg.
0: Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. We are excited today to delve into chapters five and six of Age of Opportunity by Lawrence Steinberg. But first, instead of our usual conversation, Laura and I thought it might be nice to kind of Catch everybody up on what we're doing, where we're at in our careers, other new updates. (laughs) Okay, so Laura, I mean, I know you've gotten a couple new clients for your private practice. So do you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, I feel like the last time I really talked about my private practice on the podcast. I was so focused on preschool stuttering and I still am. That is my number one. Those are the clients I want to take on and I'm really passionate about treating. But I have recently been taking on some more articulation clients, some early intervention clients. I feel incredibly busy. Like I feel good because I have clients to see every day. But I'm also kind of at a point where I'm like, I think I would take one more and then probably start a waiting list or refer out. Sure. That's the point I'm at. So I love that. And. I don't see a ton of clients, but that just allows me to be really, really present. I'm having a lot of fun making materials for articulation clients. If you're someone who makes stuff for TPT or for yourself, you know that's just the most fun thing to make is articulation stuff, (laughs) probably because it's the easiest to make and they're so cute. And just feeling really good about the connections I'm making with the families, with the parents. I feel very overall connected to what I'm doing right now. Okay, I don't want to call out anybody. I did see a post today that was like, this is not a calling or your passion. Like it is just your job. And I'm like, but it is a calling. (laughs) It is your passion. I don't know. I know that as SLPs, sometimes we have to remind ourselves, I'm not just an SLP. Right. I'm this whole person. This isn't all of who I am. But I don't know. I just do feel incredibly passionate about being an SLP right now.
0: Yay. I love that. I mean, I know like. (laughs) What about you? Yeah, I was just going to say, I know as SLPs, I feel like we can all kind of struggle with boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know, like. (laughs) Yes. It's like we have hard times differentiating. Am I an SLP versus like, is that my whole identity? I feel like some people that gets a little sloppy. So I get what you're saying. But I'm so happy to hear that. I love that. I will talk a little bit about myself, but I wanted to ask you about your store, if you wanted to talk about your store, because I feel like that maybe has something to do with like oh. you feeling so good about being an SLP as you're making some fun stuff right now for like people to wear.
1: Stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even say that. Yeah. You know that I, on a whim... it was kind of weird like I got this sweatshirt on Etsy and it was like a personalized sweatshirt with my dog on it and I loved it so much I got one for me and one for my fiance and I was just looking at it like I could make something like this this looks so fun then I was about to just like order tons of blank sweatshirts and like a printing some type of (laughs) printing equipment when I found a YouTube video and realized there is print on demand you can design things and sell them on Etsy so yeah I did start an Etsy store I sell like a wide range of weird things but I do keep an eye out on my personal Instagram page every once in a while I'll post if I make like a cute SLP shirt and the SLP stuff I make is some of the stuff that's doing the best like of course, I guess your passion comes through. It's like the stuff I make for dogs and the stuff I make for SLPs, it's what's selling the best in my Etsy (sighs) store. (laughs) So yeah, no, I, as if I needed like another outlet for my creativity (laughs) when I'm already (laughs) doing the podcast and everything, but that has been fun. It's not like some huge endeavor. I can just like leave it alone. I don't even think about it most of the time but then when I come up with something I add it to my little Etsy store and that has been really fun
0: well I feel like that's like a natural fit for you you know like with how you're such a good designer you're so creative and I did see something cute that you posted on your Instagram which is why I was like oh yeah you should talk about that (laughs) because I thought it was so cute so
1: well thank you yeah I love making those all right tell me how stuff is going with you because even when we're off the podcast I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot about your job this year your new position?
0: So yeah, everything's going okay. I'm still doing teletherapy for middle school and it's going okay. You know, I've had, the kids are really fun, but it's a little bit of a different position. Like I only see students for services like two days of the week. Um, I basically am overseeing a slip uh, a lot of the time. So it's like a lot of assessment, a lot of meetings and it's okay. Like I love that. I love connecting with parents in meetings. I love being there to support as needed but it's a little bit of a bummer like I do have to say I am missing kind of being with kids in person I feel like when you're talking about like your passion like that's when it really gets me Is like I love being with kids in person but there are so many advantages to being a teletherapist that it does outweigh that for me at this time I kind of need the flexibility with my daughter and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and yeah I have also been like coming up against a lot of issues being a teletherapist in pretty much a brick-and-mortar district. There's only a handful of us therapists that they hired to kind of fill some positions, and it's just been like really kind of tough, like connecting with the team there. Everybody's in person. I'm remote, and so maybe we can talk about that on a future episode. We can do like a hot topic and just kind of talk about pros and cons of being a teletherapist versus in-person and some struggles. But other than that, you know, I'm still really happy. It's I love middle school. I love high school. And it's fun to work on those higher level language things. And I still have a handful of our tick. So yeah, you know, that's going okay. And then I'm also still working kind of part time at a private clinic, overseeing a slipa, So I'm supervising there. And I do get to do a handful of in person assessments every month. So I guess that's kind of scratching my itch for seeing kids in person. And then that's also more of like an early intervention setting. So I'm getting to see little ones there too. So um, yeah, I'm just basically busy and then, you know, doing the podcast, trying to focus on my app. That I yeah.
1: <laughs> Tell us about the app. <laughs>
0: uh, Yeah. So I mean, I feel like I'm minimizing it Just talking about it, but the plate is full and overflowing, of course. Is everything going okay with the app? Yeah, everything's okay. I just signed up for a bunch of marketing courses.
1: Oh, fun. I know.
0: I don't know what courses you use or what website, but I like Udemy, like U-D-E-M-Y.
1: Yeah, I've heard of that.
0: Yeah. So it's just little courses you can buy to help. And they have a bunch on like kind of app development stuff. I think it's better if you're looking for technical skills, but they're still stuff out there if you look and I had a bunch like in my cart but I was like I don't know and then I went the other day and they were having like an amazing sale and each course that was normally like $120 was like $10 each oh wow so I just like stocked up and bought a bunch of them so I think my after the holidays you know all the craziness is done now it sort of feels like that okay, we can finally take a breath and I'm going to start digging into that.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love learning about stuff like that.
0: It's hilarious that I just listed off all these things that I'm doing. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm still kind of thinking like, maybe I'll do a mommy and me class this summer and get a group together.
1: Oh, like you'll run it.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll run it.
1: Oh, that's cute.
0: I've kind of been thinking that through the private practice because most like I'm not seeing any private clients right now since I'm so busy with other stuff. I'm kind of like paused and so I'm like oh maybe you know the next couple months is a time to start advertising for that yeah you know I guess we just can't help ourselves
1: I know it's just like (laughs) I feel totally overwhelmed with stuff and then I'm like what else can I add what other one little thing can I add so I know so that is what's going on with our work what about we're at the end of January Did you set any goals, any resolutions? How are they going so far? Making any changes? What's going on?
0: So I am kind of focused a little bit more on health stuff. I feel like I've been hearing from a lot of people that 2023 was like pretty horrible year. (laughs) I mean, I can definitely say that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I felt like I was sort of treading water last year, like I did not have even the bandwidth to think about like improving. Yeah. So this year I'm kind of like, okay, I'm sort of in a better place. I'm thinking more about health stuff. Just kind of like I know we talked about this, but sort of like more towards sobriety, not like I've been drinking a ton, but I think the holidays, like everyone indulges a lot. And then here comes January. It's like, oh, this is kind of a nice time for like a complete refresh. So Mm -hmm. that's been kind of nice. I know you and I have been talking about all kinds of fun, like replacement drinks and kombuchas and mocktails. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah. And then other than that, basically the app, I just want to be more productive this year and I want to be like a little bit more on top of things. And
1: I broke out my planner again. My clever fox. I have become so productive. My clever fox is right here. (laughs)
0: i did put a sticker on mine oh cute
1: okay i feel like i need to decorate mine i got a little inspired by a post that tara sumter did about time blocking and how that's her biggest has changed her life and i was just like my days feel when you don't have when you're not going to a job when you're kind of like seeing clients here and there and like you have to be on top of yourself for things like podcast editing and blah 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 sure your days just get to be kind of like this big blob where you're like wasting time on stuff you don't need to be doing and then kind of like oh my gosh it's already five o'clock I haven't done any exercise I need to make dinner like it's just like this mess so I broke out the clever fox planner which it had been over a year I believe over a year since I wrote in it (laughs) (laughs) and every day I am like on it. Like I have a list of what I want to get done. I'm writing it all down. I'm sticking to it. I mean, it has been one week, so let's not <laughs> let's not act like I'm changing the world over here. But it's really been helping. Like today I knew we were recording. I knew I needed to go see a client. And so this morning it was like one cup of coffee, not two. Get up, walk the dogs, walk on the treadmill while I like finished our reading for the book club. You know, I just like I have it all planned out. And then I told you. My new workout thing is dribble up boxing. I'm doing boxing workouts like every day. Today I took a class where I was ranked second in the class. I don't know how many people took it. I didn't look it up, but I'm getting really good and it tracks my punches. (laughs) (laughs) And it is just so fun. And I have a hard time lifting weights in the winter when it's cold in my Uh, gym garage. So I just love being in the house, like boxing on my phone in the heated house. And yeah, I don't know. And yeah, same as you like, not drinking during the week, just feeling healthier. And right now it feels like it's going well. We'll see if the wheels fall off. I was just listening to a podcast where she was making fun of people with their resolutions and like new year, new me. And she's like, just stay consistent. Like why do we (laughs) Why do we all have to have this like new, but
0: it does feel like the right time it does. to make some changes, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like a reset, yeah. you know, I feel it. Like I'm really been feeling that. Um, I have two updates for you. One, do you like yeah. my mug? I can't really see it. What's on it? I made it myself. It has stars on it. Oh my <laughs> I went to color me mine. Okay. Those are <laughs> With your daughter, or just like for yourself? Yeah, with my daughter. (laughs) Although it was so much fun that now I'm on this kick where I'm like, everybody in my life, I'm like, we should go to coloring. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wait, I have to ask you. Okay, you you see, it has a pink? I did see the inside is
1: pink. Yeah, I can see it. I just cannot... I couldn't see okay. the stars, really. That's okay. You'll be able to see Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, did you ever watch that show on HBO about the pottery competition in England? The great throw down. I would love to. Lots of seasons. They're like spinning pottery and there's challenges each time. Yeah. I, at th- for a very short time, was like looking into local pottery places that I could become a member of. You know, like you can just go and like spin and they have the kiln. Yeah. I was getting really into it, even though yeah. I have never, ever done anything like it, <laughs> except for a pottery class or like an art class in middle school where I made Like a little frog.
0: Okay. Well, I took a ceramics class in high school. And I was so horrible at it. I like made this horrible like coil pitcher. I painted it yellow and green, like sprite colors, like lemon lime. Uh It's so ugly. I gave it to my grandma. She still displays it. She's my grandma. She's going to display this hideous thing I made 20 years ago. (laughs) Of course. It's gorgeous. But I remember the ceramics part's hard. I mean, we didn't do anything on the wheel, but like you do a lot of like hand clay, like sort of like pinch bowls and things. And it was so hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean. But this? You, well, yeah. Look at
1: the shape. It's... (laughs) It's already made for you. Beautiful, gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do. I just paint it. Well, (laughs) I think you're really going to like that show. It's a reality television show. It's a competition show. Multiple seasons. One person gets eliminated each week. There's like multiple challenges, and the things they make are just unbelievable. You'll love the people. You'll love the hosts and like judges. It's just so great.
0: Well. (laughs) I would like to ask you, how much do you think it is to make an item at Color Me Mine? Okay. Like out the door. For
1: that mug? Yes. This mug. Um, thirty six
0: dollars. Okay, let me tell you. <laughs> the mug itself was thirty dollars. Oh my god. And gosh. then there's studio fees twelve dollars per person for like paint. Oh my gosh. So it's actually with tax and stuff, close to fifty dollars. wow i was pretty shocked i was like whoa unbelievable but it is fun and then it has the delayed gratification oh do you go pick it up later because you have to wait a week yeah okay yeah all right well we hope that you enjoyed our conversation um we're so happy to be starting out the new year with everybody and we hope that you are learning a ton from our book that we're reading right now age of opportunity so stay tuned and we'll get into chapters five and six have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura GSLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers, like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT.
1: I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program, divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code bookclub10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too.
0: So chapter five is about the risky behavior that teens tend to engage in. Dr. Steinberg opens up the chapter by discussing several stories about teens, like doing things that could have got them in serious trouble, like running from the police in the middle of the night when they set off a house alarm on accident or pranking a teacher, things like that. And he mentions something called the age crime curve, which shows that people become more reckless as they go through adolescence. And then less reckless as they mature into their 20s. And the FBI also reports that most crimes are committed by adolescents. So it's good to remember. Avoid adolescents who look like they're up to no good. (laughs) (laughs) Adolescents in general engage in more risky behavior and are the most likely to die of accidental drowning. Um, having unintended pregnancies, experiment with alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs, not wear seatbelts or bicycle helmets, and engage in reckless driving. Despite the fact that adolescents are healthier, stronger, and smarter than children, morbidity and mortality increase between 200 and 300% between childhood and adolescence. Nearly half of all deaths during adolescence are due to accidents. And increased risk-taking creates a massive public health problem due to consequences that last long after adolescence is over. Some theories have been presented to try to explain this risk-taking behavior. However, adolescents are just as likely as adults to understand what is risky and what isn't, and they are also just as good as guessing that something will be risky and will lead to a bad consequence. So by the time they're 16, teenagers are also able to reason logically as well as an adult. They're able to guess the consequence and they're able to reason just as well. So it shows that, you know, there's something else going on. And research has also shown that adolescents feel they are just as invulnerable as adults feel. So these were all the theories people were putting out, like maybe they can't really think of the consequence or maybe they have a hard time reasoning or maybe they feel like they're just invincible, but all these studies show that all of these results are exactly the same as adults. So what is going on? Well, adolescent risk-taking is about poor impulse control and immature prefrontal cortexes, but it's also about the fact that adolescents are more sensitive to rewards than adults are. So Dr. Steinberg kind of uses the example of Life for adults being like walking past a plate of warm chocolate chip cookies with cotton in your nose or running your fingers over an Angora sweater with surgical gloves on. So basically adult senses are dulled and that impacts our ability to desire certain things for adolescents. It just feels so much better. And the main difference in adolescents versus adults is that while adolescents can identify the risks just as well as adults, they rate the possible rewards of risky behavior as much more enticing than adults do. So it's not an inability to control themselves. It's a stronger desire for the immediate reward. There's also something to be said for the presence of peers and the impact that that has on adolescents making risky decisions. So the likelihood of an accident goes up with each teenage passenger in a car if a teenager is driving. And this is not the same for adults. Adolescents are also more likely to commit crimes in groups than adults are. And experimentation with alcohol and illegal drugs also takes place when kids are with their friends. There has been some theories about this floating around. Oh, it's peer pressure, but it's actually not really due to peer pressure at all. During studies, teens are likely to engage in risky behavior if they are aware of peers just being nearby, even if they're separated from them. So they can't actively be encouraged, you know, to make risky decisions by each other. So why is that happening? Why does the presence of friends make teenagers more likely to take chances? The answers are found in the social brain. So for one thing, adolescents pay more attention to other people's expressions, thoughts, feelings, and opinions of them than adults do. Changes in the brain during adolescence make them more likely to figure out what other people are thinking, more sensitive to social acceptance and social rejection, and more responsive to other people's emotional cues. This all combines to make adolescents just more sensitive to their status within their peer group, more likely to succumb to peer pressure, and more interested in gossiping. Being super sensitive to the opinions of others can have serious consequences at this age. Um, Social rejection might cause the increase in depression during adolescence, and also explain why it's more likely to occur in girls than boys. Crowds can have an impact on decision making as well. So if there's a group of teens and everyone is more concerned about how other members perceive them, then conformity takes over and the decision making is actually worse than when individuals make the decisions.
1: That section really stood out to me, just the section on group decision making. Yeah, right. I feel like that happens now on social media with cancel culture where people get called out for things where it's like you kind of have to go with the status quo otherwise you are like it's just terrible it can be really terrible online and we see that It it just feels as if right now there's like No free speech. It feels like everybody's making kind of like making decisions together and going with it. Do you get that? I mean, not to get like, I'm not going to go off on any type of rant. It stood out to me as like, social media is making this happen on like this very massive scale.
0: Yeah, definitely. And wielding social rejection as a weapon. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely see what you're saying. If
1: you stand up, if you disagree with somebody and you stand up and say it, that possibility of being totally rejected or whatever is enough to just make you shut up. Right. So you can totally understand why group decision making doesn't work. Because people don't feel like they can stand up for themselves.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of that, but I see how that can be applied kind of like to the macrocosm of that situation for sure. Mm -hmm. Decision making is a combination of part of the brain that's on the lookout for immediate stimulation and reward and a self-regulation system in the brain that keeps impulses in check and asks us to think ahead. So during pre-adolescence, these systems are balanced. But during adolescence, the reward system overtakes the self-regulation system. And pleasure received from something like a drug that increases the brain's craving for dopamine leads to more pleasure-seeking behaviors. So it fuels the search for excitement. And basically, feeling good makes us want to feel even better. So it kind of like starts this cycle that's hard to stop. And being around peers for adolescence lights Mm -hmm. up the same reward center as drugs, sex, food, and money. So it's not that peer pressure makes teens do more reckless things. It's that being around friends makes everything feel so good that they become even more sensitive to rewards than they ordinarily are, which leads them to take more risky chances. Dr. Steinberg recommends that. (laughs) Sorry, I just remembered that this is like. A hilarious statement. So take this with a grain of salt and we can talk about this after. Um, but Dr. Steinberg recommends that parents try to limit the amount of unsupervised time teens spend with their friends. And then I wrote in my notes, I don't know how effective one can do. Like, how could how effective can somebody be with that? I mean, like you're like, okay, you can go to the mall as long as. Jessica's mom stays with you like
1: (laughs) I know I know I mean I feel like I had the strictest of strict parents my curfew was 10 I just, we would never, my parents never, ever one time went out of town and left us home alone to have a party or something. Like they would never. Right. And still the shenanigans I got up to, you know, because you have the friends that have the more lenient parents. You always find the place to hang out. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So there's no solution. I don't know. I don't know what you can do.
0: Yeah. Like when I read that, I immediately flashed back to like, how horrible i would have been to my mother if she told me like i couldn't go to my friend's house remember how disappointed when you'd be like let me have a sleepover tonight and your mom would be like not tonight and you're just like raging like i i don't know oh
1: yeah teenage girls to their moms are already
0: awful oh my gosh
1: and if you are the parent that's like putting your foot down and not allowing them to do what their peers are doing. I know. It's just, I I don't know.
0: Well, he says that this is one reason that the law prohibiting teen drivers from having teenage passengers until they've reached a certain age or like a year with their license or whatever is so effective at reducing accidents. Because especially with that statistic that the more teens that are in the car, the more likely an accident is to occur. He also says that parents who cannot supervise their children in the afternoon should be aware of this effect this like peer effect, and try to limit the amount of unsupervised time they spend with other teens in the afternoon. Again, tell me how, tell me when, tell me why. I mean, we know the why, but like, I don't know. Seems lofty. Yeah. He said the adolescent initial experimentation with alcohol, drugs, sex, and delinquent behavior is not on a Friday and Saturday night, but a weekday afternoon. So think about that. (laughs) Dr. Steinberg explains that there was a campaign to fight teenage pregnancy that tried to guilt teens by telling them that their children, if they were born to teenage parents, they'd be less likely to graduate from high school. And that was supposed to be a way to deter them from like having unprotected sex. But, you know, this completely gets it wrong with how teens think about their behavior. So teens who have unprotected sex do so because they were not expecting or prepared to have sex in that moment. And then telling them that like, oh, but your unplanned child won't be able to graduate from high school, probably won't make them stop and like rethink their decisions in the middle of a heated moment. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he said that like $400,000 was spent on that campaign. Yeah. Although $1 billion are spent each year on programs to try to curb adolescent risk-taking and its consequences. The stats remain pretty stable with very little reduction in a lot of different areas, including binge drinking, riding in a car driven by someone who has been drinking, having unprotected sex and being overweight. Despite the increase in accessibility to educational programs, statistics for things like marijuana use and drinking remain the same that they were 20 or 30 years ago. And unfortunately, there's too many correlating events to be able to say that health education is directly impacting these kinds of statistics. Maybe smoking rates have actually gone down because cigarettes are way more expensive now than they were 30 years ago. These programs would be a lot more effective if they focused on increasing the adolescent's ability to self-regulate as opposed to focusing on providing them just more information about their choices. Remember in the beginning we were saying they understand the consequences. They understand that they're not invulnerable to these consequences. They understand the risk. They just, it feels really good for them. Yeah. So they're going to do it. (laughs) And stay tuned for chapter eight because he says he's going to go over some programs that will help adolescents exercise self-control. And basically at this point, I'm like, time to deliver Dr. Steinberg. (laughs) Show me how we solve these problems because we're really like making the case we're halfway
1: (laughs) through the book we know it's a problem and we need the solution yeah he's just keeping us on the hook
0: (laughs) okay and then he does have like a little caveat at the end so he says while it is unrealistic to assume that we can make large-scale changes in the ways in which we raise and educate adolescents we as parents and educators can try our best to change the context in which these decisions are made So parents can monitor and supervise adolescents more consistently and be watchful when they go out in groups. Communities could try to provide more structured activities and after-school programs. He also recommends raising the driving age, which I'm pretty much on board with, although good luck trying to do that. Increasing adolescents' access to mental health and birth control and being more on top of the sales of alcohol to teens. Risk-taking and reward-seeking are just inherent parts of the adolescent brain, and it would be pretty impossible for us to change that, so we have to change the environment. Yep. So that's it for chapter five. I will get into chapter six in one moment, but I do have to say I was having this conversation maybe like a week ago with a friend who was telling me that she shoplifted in high school, Oh, and I was like so shocked. Of course I never did. I was like an angel. Yeah. I was such a rule follower. I never would have done that. But like, she's not a delinquent now. Right. So I was like, oh my God, you had like this bad girl, like high school thing. It's like, why did you do it? And there was like no answer from her. She was like, I don't know. Like, I kind of wanted to seem cool in front of my friends. Yeah. And at the moment, I was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Like, I'm feeling different about you <laughs> now that I know this fact. <laughs> but then when I was reading this chapter, I was like, oh my God. Like, I was texting her, like, it's because you were with your peers and the pleasure seat. <laughs> I just had all these like yeah. explanations for the risk-taking behavior.
1: <laughs> he didn't go back and say, remember my friend's daughter from the introduction or chapter one or whatever. But it became clear to me when I was making some Instagram posts this week. Right? Oh, the adolescent brain, the pleasure-seeking, it's nothing. We make it more deep than it needs to be. Right? It's not deep. It is just they want... They're seeking the thrill, the excitement of getting away with it, the admiration of their peers that they did it, you know, and I knew a lots of people who shoplifted in high school and yeah, they, nobody can, they can't explain it at all. It'll just be like, well, I wanted it and I knew I could get it, Right. <laughs> but a lot of them get caught I know. and nothing really happens. Well. So I don't know.
0: So chapter six opens up by explaining the well-known test of self-regulation known as the marshmallow test. A preschooler is seated in a room with a plate in front of them with a treat on it, like a cookie or a marshmallow, and the researcher tells them they need to step out for a few minutes. You know, they're going to leave the child in there with the treat, and if they don't eat it, they'll get two when the researcher returns. And this is a way to look at delayed gratification, which is an important part of self-control. So the results of the original study were that about a third of the kids were able to wait until the experimenter returned, which could take up to 15 minutes, and most held on as long as they could, but ended up eating the treat before they returned. The original study was done 50 years ago, and follow-up studies have been done to see where the delayers are versus the non-delayers, like in life. And it's not a surprise that the delayers consistently performed well on tests of self-regulation. So we've covered the results from the marshmallow test on this podcast before, but it's important to remember that people who were delayers, even when they were four years old, turned out to be more successful overall in life. They had higher SAT scores and better coping abilities. And once they became young adults, they completed more years of school and were more successful at dealing with stress and had higher overall self-esteem. The people who had more problems delaying gratification when they were young Ended up having issues with being overweight and behavioral problems like drug abuse. So Dr. Steinberg explains that in his lab, they have a test called the now or later test. And they ask people, would you rather choose a smaller amount of money sooner, like $200 tomorrow, or a larger amount of money at a later point in time, like $1,000 in a year? And if people choose the larger amount, then they counter with a new amount to be given tomorrow and make it a little higher. Like, would you rather have $600 tomorrow or $1,000 in a year? And they keep adjusting it until they get to that indifference point. And everybody has an indifference point, which is when their choice reflects a preference more than an ability. Because this test doesn't really involve self-control. They're just kind of trying to figure out how willing are you to settle for less in order to get it sooner. And on average, children are more attracted to immediate rewards than teenagers are, and teenagers are more attracted to immediate rewards than adults are. Overall, people who show a stronger preference for immediate rewards have more problems in their lives. So they struggle with compulsive gambling, obesity, substance abuse, alcoholism, low school achievement, criminal behavior, and poor hygiene. So the ultimate marshmallow test is when you think about it in the grand scheme of life, is the schooling process. And ultimately, the biggest rewards come to those who are able to delay satisfaction for a very long time because the process of going from kindergarten all the way through completion of college, maybe even a graduate degree or a doctoral degree, takes such a long time and requires a lot of patience while you wait for your reward. And over time, the wage gap between those who only have a high school diploma and those who have a degree has widened significantly. So in the early 1980s, the wage difference was about $7,000. And now those who don't have the wherewithal to stay in school through a college graduation suffer disproportionately. I was actually pretty sad to hear this because I feel like we're not really doing enough like to support these kids, but we'll get into it Mm -hmm. as adolescents have grown. And as the time in adolescence has grown, it means that the arousal of the reward system happens earlier and earlier, but the time that it takes to actually start adulthood has gotten further and further away. So we're actually requiring more of adolescence in regards to delay of gratification as this time gets longer and longer. It takes a really long time to earn a decent living with a college degree. So you need pretty strong abilities. Dr. Steinberg talks about an article that was written for the New York Times about three economically disadvantaged teenagers from Texas who were all given the opportunity to attend college in order to improve their lives overall. They took weekend and summer programs that were designed to improve college readiness. I think one of the girls who was kind of the focal point of the story Her name was Angelica, and she received a full-ride scholarship to Emory University. However, at the end of four years, she was back home working in a furniture store as a clerk with $60,000 worth of debt. And the article noted that the factors between social class and educational attainment are pretty complicated, and there are a lot of things that impact success like family dysfunction, financial strain, and a lack of familiarity with the process of how higher education works. But Dr. Steinberg notes that his big takeaway from the article was the girls' incredibly poor judgment, which was impacted by their desire to focus on the immediate reward and difficulty with delaying gratification. So Angelica's first mistake was that she had failed to fill out the necessary forms to receive her full financial aid package, despite repeated attempts by the school to remind her. So because of this, she ended up having to work a job while in school and acquired credit card debt at the same time. She continued to be involved with some loser boyfriend from high school who was jobless and relying on her for financial support. And because she was so stressed out and financially strained, she started partying more and increased her work hours and started skipping classes. So obviously, this is not a recipe for success. And when you look at her story closer, you can see that she was focusing on immediate rewards like her boyfriend or, you know, getting her small paychecks from her side job and a lack of attention on the long term consequences of her decisions, like not filling out the financial aid forms and assessments of federal programs that are supposed to prepare low income students for college show that they just don't work. And the answer to this problem is not more financial aid or more college prep classes. The key is that we need to increase people's determination and that just increasing their opportunities is not necessarily going to lead to better results. So Dr. Steinberg shared an example of a student he had when he was being an advisor whose name was Lucy. She was a doctoral student that he was advising and she would go to his office to discuss an idea, get like really excited about the idea. And then Dr. Steinberg would say, okay, go back, write a really short thought piece like couple pages to help clarify your thinking about the idea it wasn't a formal assignment it wasn't going to be graded just something to help her kind of get her thoughts in order but then she would disappear for weeks avoid all contact with him and never turn it in and this went on and on for a couple years the meeting the assignment not turning it in And he started to get really frustrated. You know, he felt like as an advisor, it wasn't his job to call her in and chastise her about her behavior. You know, he says, if you're going to be a researcher, nobody's going to harass you to turn in your research. So if that's a career you want, you need to be able to apply the pressure to yourself. However, he sat down and kind of started to think about all the 30 different advisory students he'd had over his time as a professor. And he thought about all the factors that were required for them to get into the program in the first place, you know, GRE scores, overall GPA, letters of recommendation, past research experience, personal statement, and interview. And he was struck by the fact that those things were basically useless at predicting future success in the field. So he determined the actual factor and whether or not somebody was a successful student for him was actually tenacity. These students were the ones who worked the hardest and went above and beyond. And this makes you realize that people used to think that what distinguished young people who did well in school from those who didn't was intelligence. But in actuality, only about 25% of school performance is due to intelligence. The remaining 75% is something else, some mystery. Not a mystery for long. We're going to talk about it. So tests like IQ tests and the SAT actually aren't very predictive of academic success. If you gave a bunch of first graders a standardized test and then you use those results to guess who would be academically successful, chances are that you would be wrong. And that's because these tests don't measure determination, persistence, or grit. Determination is when you're dedicated enough to keep focused and persevere even when things are hard. So it involves conscientiousness, stamina, and sustained commitment. You have to delay gratification because you're investing your time and effort into something that might not have an immediate payoff or might not actually come at all. Somewhat surprisingly, there is no correlation between determination and intelligence, ability, or talent. There is a revolution currently taking place in the studies of school achievement that focuses on what are referred to as non-cognitive skills. However, that's not really the correct name because the difference is truly between factors that are intellectual and factors that are motivational, not non-cognitive. It's a shift from how to get kids to understand things to how to encourage them to use what they understand. So things like determination, perseverance, and tenacity are not skills that can be acquired, but are capacities that should be nourished. Determination to succeed is not something that can be taught through conventional academic instruction. You can't teach it with a whiteboard and markers, but it is essential for success. So Dr. Steinberg discusses a study of high school achievement that he and his colleagues completed and published in a book called Beyond the Classroom. If you would like to read more, (laughs) they found that Asian students were more likely than any other group to be successful. And this is because they were more likely to believe that sustained effort paid off. So this resulted in them spending twice as much time studying, being less likely to cut school, being more likely to concentrate when they were in class, and more likely to do their homework. They simply worked harder. And I would like to ask Dr. Dr. Steinberg if they looked at any other correlations, because I don't know about you, Laura, but at my high school, there were a lot of Asian students, and I personally had a lot of different Asian friends. And yeah, I mean, I do think that they... I think there was like a lot of other factors. It wasn't just that they thought hard work paid off. So they were going to work really hard. There was other things like familial expectations and parents who were very strict and very intense. And so I think there was like a lot of environmental factors that went into it besides just like determination and grit. I just wanted to say that.
1: My best friend from high school. Is Chinese. Yeah, it was more, I would say, more of a familial expectation thing. She is pretty much why I was so on top of like studying for the SATs, applying to colleges. We went and toured colleges together with her family. Like there was more expectation. But also like setting it up, like I've told you before that she used to get money for good grades, like there were rewards in place for her to achieve. And it was a different attitude, I guess. But what is standing out to me and I tried to look it up and I cannot find it. I once read an article about how in some Asian cultures, they're much better at financial planning and saving money because of the way they view their future how they view their future self as part of them now, like how they see their life, whereas in Western culture, we often see ourselves in the future as like someone else, not as ourself. Mm. And the, the you that's here right now is you. And the one in the past that you already experienced, but you're not really thinking of like your future self. And I was thinking about that as I read this, you would be so much more determined, persistent, you'd be willing to delay gratification if you knew that you were doing it for that future version of you that you feel is a part of yourself now versus like, I'm kind of more of a like live in the moment, do what feels good now. (laughs) Who cares about tomorrow, Laura, like that type of person. That's how I am. That's just how I'm built. I remember that this article did focus on an attitude in Asian cultures, but I do think that is something that just certain people are born with, not necessarily cultural. Certain people just are more, I'm determined because that future me is me.
0: I see. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. It's like an integration of self. Yeah. I do that a lot where I think, and I'll say this to people, I'll be like, you should do this thing because your future self will thank you. Yeah. I do that for myself. Like I'll put, you know, I'll put my workout clothes by my bed so that in the morning I will wake up and just have it right there. You know, all these things where you're like, I don't really want to. And it's like, but won't you be so happy when it's done tomorrow and your life is easier and better? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) I guilt myself, I guess. (laughs) I have the
1: smallest example of that, I keep my coffee maker in my (laughs) garage because my fiance doesn't like the smell of coffee in the morning. So it's in the garage and it's really cold in there and it's a Keurig and like I have to fill the water tank. Mm. It only holds three cups worth. So I have to fill it. And like sometimes I'm like, oh, I should go fill it tonight so I don't have to go get it in the cold in the morning and fill it up, you know, and then I'll be like, just do it, Laura. Like and I'll act like I'm such a hero for taking care of future Laura.
0: Yeah, and then in the morning you it's there and you're like, oh, thank you. It does. Puzzle. It feels so
1: good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Adolescents who score high on measures of perseverance, but only average on measures of intelligence are more successful than those who score high on measures of intelligence, but only average on measures of perseverance. So success in the world of work, like how much money somebody makes, is more strongly correlated with effort than ability. Obviously, like the salesman who makes more phone calls and knocks on more doors is going to be more successful because they're more persistent. So determination requires many things like a strong motivation to succeed, self-confidence, commitment to completing a task, a belief in the power of hard work, and a focus on the future rather than the present. Most importantly, it requires self-regulation. So self-regulation is what separates the determined and the successful from the insecure the distractible, and the easily discouraged. Self-regulation, and therefore determination, is a strong predictor in many different types of success, not just academic success. Also success at work, more satisfying friendships and romantic relationships, and better physical and mental health. People who score low in self-regulation are more likely to get into trouble with the law and to suffer from a range of medical and psychological problems like heart disease, obesity, depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Good self-regulators are more able to control their feelings, which makes them less likely to get into fights and arguments, less likely to have emotional meltdowns, and easier to get along with. These are all qualities that make people good workers, good friends, and good classmates. So people who are poor self-regulators are more likely to give in to temptation, overeat, develop addictions, commit crimes, and spend beyond their means. And I'm sorry, I realize that I'm saying this and it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but <laughs> 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 I just found this all to be so like, I feel like it's good to know, you know? <laughs> it's enlightening. Yeah. Um, people who are good self-regulators are better at resisting distraction, focusing attention, and stopping themselves from obsessing over things they can't do anything about. So this means they can be more productive, better able to make and carry out plans, and less likely to fall into a funk that they can't get out of. The high school years are a critical time to develop these self-regulation skills. There is more support available to children in elementary school, and this support is slowly faded out as we expect more of high schoolers to complete long-term projects on their own. But some studies that were done on self-regulation give us important information. So self-regulation contributes just as much to health, happiness, and success as intelligence and socioeconomic status. A lot of people understand that there are huge advantages to intelligence and wealth, but few understand how important self-control is. Intelligence tends to be pretty stable, so if a student tests high on an IQ test in early elementary school, we could assume that they'll continue to test high on an intelligence test well into adolescence. Intelligence is highly determined by genes, and while it's not a physical trait like height, it is very strongly determined by genetics more so than any other psychological trait. However, the same is not true for self-regulation. Self-control does have a substantial genetic component, but the impact of genes on self-control is only about half that of intelligence. On average, children who are more impulsive when they are young are also more impulsive when they're older. But the correlation between early and later impulsivity is not very strong. So it's harder to predict adolescent impulsivity from measures of childhood impulsivity as opposed to predicting adolescence intelligence based on childhood measures of intelligence. Part of this is because changes in self-control during adolescence are more influenced by the environment. So while moving an adolescent who scores low on an IQ test to an environment that's more stimulating will have little impact on overall intelligence, moving an adolescent who has poor self-control into an environment that promotes better self-control can actually make a huge difference. So that 50% of reduction compared to intelligence with um, like malleability can go a long way if we can control the environment or give them the right input to help them gain better Mm self-control. One of the most important characteristics we inherit is plasticity or how likely we are to be influenced by the environment. So instead of being susceptible to specific problems, we may really be more plasticity prone, which can either be good or a bad thing. The same genes that make us depressed if we grow up in a bad environment can make us psychologically stronger if we grow up in a really good environment. So while genes contribute to self-control. Whether the genes are helpful or not depends on the environment. And family is the most environmental contributor to self-regulation. So what do you think we're going to learn about, Laura, in Chapter 7?
1: (laughs) What parents can do. (laughs) The
0: family as the environment. Yeah. So that was a lot of information, but I found this to be so fascinating. And again, I'm like, okay, Dr. Steinberg, I'm chomping at the bit. Like, what can we do to help everyone, you know? have a better sense of self control.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really got me thinking I'm, as we're talking about it, I'm realizing maybe reading this is really, really what's kind of cueing me to have more self regulation in my own life right now at this moment. And it is making me really happy. Like it's making me feel very accomplished every day. Yeah. (laughs) So it's already helping me. I just am just so curious how we change. I I guess we're going to learn. How we change the environment or teach kids to have more self-control.
0: How? I know. But you know what, Laura? I did want to ask you, were you having any revelations about how this impacts you as an SLP or about speech therapy in general?
1: What way do you mean?
0: Like, you know, thinking about self-control, thinking about maybe it's more relevant to kids who have like behavioral difficulties, I don't know.
1: I guess because I don't work with the older kids and we just kind of expect that a lot of young kids are going to have pretty poor self-regulation, especially boys. I work with a lot of boys. Really, this book has got me thinking more about my own past, my own self now. Of course. You know, I wish I had kids that I could apply it to and think about, but little kids are little kids right they all kind of seem the same to me like in terms of
0: this (laughs) I know it's like I'm thinking about my middle schoolers my high schoolers and I do I would like I'm just excited to learn more maybe the dots will start connecting when we start talking more about like strategies like oh yeah this would be really great for this kid I mean I do feel like motivation is kind of I would look at the trend of motivation to work hard in speech therapy from kinder to 12th grade. And I'm sure it's downward trending. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Once they kind of get to middle school, it's like, I've had so much therapy, they're kind of over it. I do feel like motivation is a huge factor in success, you know, after like sixth grade, at least with speech therapy. I don't know about academics overall, but yeah. It's very interesting. I'm loving this. It helps me think a lot about my own life.
1: <laughs> it really does. No, I, I'm loving it too. We were texting about it before we even sat down to record. These chapters were so interesting. And this is probably one I'm going to read a couple times because so good.
0: Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, thank you everybody for joining us for chapters five and six from Age of Opportunity. We look forward to discussing chapter seven next week. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or
0: Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss and we'd love for you to weigh in.
1: Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.